If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 11 as we continue to progress through the Gospel of John. Two weeks ago, we mentioned and talked about the purpose and the importance of Jesus' miracles, that they are the central sort of stand upon which we can understand Jesus' words and we can believe Jesus' words easier because we have ascended to the fact that Jesus actually did what he has claimed to have done in the book of John. They allow us to see Jesus as the Savior, as the Christ, as John 20, 30, and 31 have pointed out. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The beginning of the book of John has seven miracles. John, no doubt, has picked out seven for a great purpose. Seven is the perfect number. It is known as the number of perfection or completion. He will make much of this in the book of Revelation, but there's no doubt that he has picked these seven out specifically to speak of Jesus as the Christ. There's no doubt if that is the number of perfection, then the seventh one gains an immense importance in picturing our salvation. Indeed, we would understand that the death and the resurrection of Lazarus is a wonderful and abiding picture of our salvation. So in the weeks ahead, as we think through John 11, we will be looking at a picture of our salvation. But today, let us simply consider how odd the love of Jesus is in this passage. It is striking how odd it is. It is not a love that we might think is right or even good, but it is no less love and it is no less for our good. This doesn't mean that his love is easy or simple, simply that it is good for us. Let us then look and read John 11, the first 16 verses, as we consider the love of Jesus this morning. John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, you'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he, might, he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. This is the word of our Lord. 
First thing I want to point out to you is the longing for a Savior that is present everywhere in this passage. There is a intense longing for things to be righted. While we exist on this earth, we will cry out for help in some way, shape, or form. We need comfort, we need justice, we need forgiveness, we need peace. Not just because we ourselves are sinful, but because the entire world that surrounds us is filled with sin. It is filled with strife and anger and injustice. And so there's always going to be a need for somebody to come and set the world to rights. Not only to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us for our sins, but just to make the earth what it ought to be. And so this morning we've got at least three groups here that are kind of crying out for help and aid. First, clearly Lazarus. Let's speak of the sickness of Lazarus. He needed to be healed. It is odd, in the first three verses, each one of those verses tells us that Lazarus is ill, like we couldn't get it the first time. John is clearly drawing our attention to it. In the first verse, a certain man was ill. In the second verse, it was Mary whose brother was ill. In the third verse, the sister sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, whom you love is ill. It reminds me of of saying something like, holy, 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 three times ill. He was supremely ill. He was ill to the point of not having recovery. He was supremely sick as God is set aside as perfectly holy in all of his ways and in all of his intentions. So this man was set aside in all of his ways to being ill. Jesus alone really knows how sick he is. There's no doubt when the The sisters send word they do not realize exactly where it's heading, or at least they hope it's not heading where they think it is. Jesus knows already. Even in verse 4 where he says, this death does, or this illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God. Jesus already knows what is going to happen and what has already happened. This is not just an illness. This threefold repetition, however, isn't for Lazarus' sake. It's not for John's sake, and it's not for Jesus' sake. It is for us. This miracle is a picture of our salvation, and just like the other miracles, it is to picture Jesus as our Savior and the kind of salvation that Jesus is to bring. So Jesus turns water into wine, demonstrating that he is the one who brings the true blessing. He is the one who cares for doubters and the official's son as he heals him from a distance. Jesus is the one who nourishes by giving us bread and fish. He is the one who controls nature by walking on water. He is the one who heals, whether lameness or blindness. John has already had Jesus utter the words that I am the light of life, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, and now he will be ultimately portrayed as the one who truly gives life to one who is dead and cannot make it out. So if this one is for us, what are we to make of it? Well, like Lazarus, we are sick. And like Lazarus, nothing in this world is going to help us get over it. We're not going to just sleep it off. We're not going to just get better on our own. Notice what the disciples say down in verse 12. Jesus has used this metaphor of falling asleep. And they say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. That word recover is the same word that we use all the time for save. And it's quite often used of people who are healed in the Gospels. Because the word just means something along the lines of he's rescued from harm. If the illness is harm and he is rescued from that harm, then he is, he is better. It's a picture of our salvation, though. But he won't actually be rescued. He won't actually get better, even if he does take a nap. He's not going to recover from this. The only way he is going to recover for, from this is if Jesus is present to resurrect him from the dead. 
Without Jesus, there is no recovery here. We cannot sleep it off. We cannot hope it'll get better. We can't medicate it away. The sickness of ours will always, always lead to death. Friend, without Jesus, you need to know that the sickness that you have in your life is not a sickness that you're going to get over in a week, in a month, in a year. You can't meditate it away. You can't eat the right foods and flush it out. You cannot do yoga and hope it goes away. Your wrong desires, your anger and frustration, your lusts and perversions, your pride and arrogance, your selfishness and hate, these are deadly. The wages of such things is death. And they cannot be fixed with any earthly tool. You cannot be changed by your attitudes and, and just expectancies of getting better over time. They are devastating. And they will eventually kill you. As surely as Lazarus will die, so you will die in your sins without help from Jesus. And perhaps many of us, and I'm sure that this is true of all of us, don't actually realize how sinfully sick we are. We think that our sins aren't that bad, that they won't lead us away from God. And many of us are very easy saying, listen, my sins are actually quite reasonable. Thank you, compared to everyone else's. If only we knew. God is supremely good and kind and long-suffering. How horrible, how rancid must our sin be to a holy God? who is long-suffering and kind and gracious, as Pastor Richard read two times over in two different books, First Peter and in Romans this morning. How rancid must our sin be for his anger and his wrath to hold over us when he is that long-suffering, he is that patient, and he is that kind. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Lazarus is longing to be healed. He's longing for a savior to come and heal him. But the sisters are also longing. The sisters are longing to get rid of their sorrow. Many of you have been in this situation. I, I imagine that this has happened very, very quickly for the sisters. But many of you have been in the situation where you've had to watch helplessly while someone you love slips away from you. A year has passed, or six months has passed, or even weeks has passed, and they are no longer the person they were. They are weak in limb and sallow in the face, and all of the energy of life has been ripped out of them. Sisters must have felt this very pointedly. You get the idea that this has come up very, very suddenly. You wonder how bad things got before they actually sent word to Jesus. John doesn't give us any indication, but he does give us an indication of what they sent to Jesus. Notice how, how light this word is, how... how how light the invitation is, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They don't say, you've got to come now and heal him. They don't demand anything out of him. They don't ask for anything from him. It is enough for them that Jesus knows that Lazarus is ill. One's reminded not just of the last miracle, but of the first miracle that Jesus does in the book of John. Mary knows the family that's getting married and the wine has run out and she's having a conversation which is not doesn't seem to be going Mary's way with Jesus when it comes to him doing something about this, as Jesus would look at her and say, I don't know what this has to do with me. And in the end, while that conversation doesn't seem to reach an actual finality, Mary walks away and says something very, very important to the people who are in charge of the wine. She just looks at him and says, listen, whatever he says, you do. She doesn't know if he will do what she wants, but she knows that he will do what is right. 
The sisters really don't seem that far away from that here. They're not asking Jesus to do anything. They simply assume that whatever he will do is right. They're longing for someone to come and to help them. They're longing for someone to take their sorrow away, for someone to remove it from them, just as much as Lazarus is probably hoping for one to come and remove the illness from him so they, in the removal of that illness, will be relieved of their sorrow. Third, we can see the disciples here and the ignorance of the disciples. Ignorance can oftentimes be a bad word. I don't mean it to be bad. I just mean that they have got no idea what's going on. They're just lost in the dark. And not lost in the dark in the way, like the Gospel of Mark kind of pictures them lost in the dark in in just not thinking through things and being kind of short on faith a little bit. But that's not how John is picturing them here. He is just picturing them as normal people with normal thoughts who don't understand exactly what Jesus is doing or exactly what he has planned. Jesus, after his hesitation, which we will get to in a minute, says that he's going to go up again. And notice immediately the question that comes to their mind. Now, let's get this right. They just sought to stone you. And then in your explanation, they kind of backed off of that. And all they wanted to do was arrest you and take you to other people who wanted to kill you. And so now you think it's a really good idea to go back home. You you think it's a good idea to just walk in there again. In essence, they're asking, "I, I don't really, I don't understand why you would do that. And Jesus then turns around and says, well, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm going to go and wake him up. And say, so, well, okay, that doesn't make any sense either because if he's going to sleep, then that probably indicates that he's getting better and, and he'll recover on his own. There's this picture of them not understanding at all what's going on. They don't understand why it is that this is actually happening the way that it is. Why does life turn out the way that it does? even when Jesus tells them exactly what's going on and clarifies that for them, there is still this great apprehension as to why they're going back to Jerusalem. Lazarus is dead. Notice what Thomas says. Thomas, who is doubting, and no doubt, I think John picks him out here so that we can have this account balanced out with the other account. Thomas, who doubts. Thomas, who says, I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in his hands and I can put my fingers in his side and I can see the wounds of him standing before me alive. Thomas says, Let us all go, that we may die with him. Thomas might not understand, but he has faith, and he will follow Jesus where he goes. Even though he feels like this is going to lead to his death, even though he feels like he is going blindly into the situation, he doesn't understand why. Nevertheless, he will go. Listen, we deal with sorrow, we deal with sickness, and we deal with ignorance as to why things happen in the world the way they do. We just do. We look around and we see sinners who have made it in life. We see people who freely mock God, allowed not only to continue to mock God, but lauded in the world for doing so. We see others who are morally corrupt get away with it. We see people who are liars, never called into account. We see favoritism and injustice never get righted. It's easy to sit back and say, I don't don't really get what Jesus is doing I don't understand why this all happens. Why does the world look like it does? Why do good have evil pressed upon them? Why do the poor suffer so much? Why do those who are in charge of things not change those things? Why are things so hard to change if a benevolent and sovereign God stands over all of the world? 
The disciples here clearly don't understand Jesus' actions. They think that if they go, they will all die. If Lazarus will get well, we don't need to go. If he's dead, we're all going to die. There is no good response here. But even admit such problems, even in the, the midst of all of these longings for a Savior, we have wonderful examples of faith. The disciples agree, we will go. They don't understand why. They don't know what Jesus is thinking, but they will go. Mary and Martha don't understand why Jesus has not come before. They don't know what he's going to do, but they insist that he know of the situation. That brings us to the second point, which is the logic of the Savior. The disciples seem to have a point, a very reasonable point. Why go back up? Again, there are basically two outcomes. He either gets well, in which he gets well, or he dies, in which he dies. But either way, they probably don't know that Jesus has anything like a resurrection planned. There's no reason to go up and risk your life. In other words, we're safer where we are, and your ministry can go forward. People die. People die. It's not as though no one in the region has died in the three years that Jesus has been there, right? It's not as though the 33 years that Jesus has walked the earth, no one has died. People die. People die all the time. I'm sorry that it's a friend of yours, but we've got bigger fish to fry. There's no reason to risk it by going up to Jerusalem. But the logic of the Savior is different, and Jesus thinks differently. He gives them a little proverb. He says, There are not 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not uh, because the light is not in him the logic of the savior is different for us the hours define the day we say hey we're going to have 8 hours of sunshine today as we work closer and closer to december 21st that number is getting closer and closer to zero right in michigan we're just going to go without at some point in time thank god we don't live in alaska where that actually does happen we get closer and closer to zero but those hours don't change the daylight changes but that's not how it works for people in the first century especially those kind of closer to the equator and for them there was always 12 hours of daytime there was the day and the day defined how long an hour was they just chunked it up into 12 bits they didn't have wristwatches that told them the time with the accuracy down to seconds they could average it probably about 15 minutes here or there. But the day defined the hours. There's probably two different meanings from this, one for Jesus and one for us or the disciples. For Jesus, it clearly means that as long as it is day, he is to walk in the will of his Father. While it is day, he is safe. While it is day, he can walk. While it is day, it is time for him to do the works that the Father has given him to do. Nighttime will be coming, Twilight is coming for him, and there will be a crucifixion. There will be a time when he won't be able to do the work that he has been sent to do anymore. But that is not this time. And so while God has him in the light, he will continue to walk down the road that God has prepared for him. It is for God's glory, both the Father and the Son, as he has said in verse 4. And it is for the faith of the disciples. Whether or not Lazarus has died, seems to have no impact on Jesus' decision. He thinks that God the Father has called for him to go, and so he will go. But when he says that there are 12 hours in a day, the fact that there are 12 apostles or 12 disciples with him should not be missed. Those 12 disciples walk then in the light of Jesus. 
they are to follow him, they are to go with him because there is no safer place for them than to be with Jesus. They might be walking into their death, but that's okay. They will do so with Jesus. As Jesus replies, or prays, excuse me, in John 17, he says, while I was with them, I kept them and I have lost none of them that you have given to me. If they follow Jesus wherever he goes into danger, into distress, they will be safe. If you walk by the logic of the Savior, you will never stumble. Find yourself in God's will, and all will be light. You will never stumble. Stumble meaning to stub your toe in some cases. Stumble meaning to fall or to lose one's faith. If you do what God has commanded you to do, if you walk and you follow Jesus, friend, you will not stumble. You will walk as though the light of the world is shining down upon your path. You will see clearly to go ahead. To stumble means that you are not walking in his light. Jesus does this. Notice how safe Jesus is in the will of the Father. Time and time again in the Gospel of John, things are about to happen to Jesus and he miraculously escapes. I don't know if the Jews were just bad aims with the stones or what the deal was, but he gets out every time. In 6.15, they're going to make him king and he escapes. In 7.44, they want to arrest him, but they can't for some reason. In 8.59, they're about to stone him, but he escapes. In 10.31 and 10.39, the same stoning or arrest, and he escapes. Time and time again, he escapes because it's not his hour. It's not his time. If he walks where the Father asks him to walk, if he does what the Father asks him to do, he is always safe. And by the time it comes for him to turn his life over, he does so because it is the Father's plan and he agrees with it. It is his plan as well. But his logic differs not just in where safety is, but even what safety is. It's safety in faith and placing yourself into the hands of the Father. It is not the safety that, friend, you might want. It is not safety from physical harm, and it certainly isn't safety from all earthly difficulties. The great implication of this is that it is better to be in pain, to be hurt, to be sorrowful, and to know that you are in God's will than it is to be an abject luxury outside of it. It is better to be in the den of hungry lions than it is to be fighting against God. It is better to be in a blazing furnace than to stand against God. It is better to be thrown in prison for the word of the Lord than to be outside of his will. It is better to be at odds with the entirety of the world and one with God than to gain the entire world and lose one's soul. This is the logic of the Savior. This is why he goes, for it's what his Father desires. Friend, we must live by this logic. Regardless of the situation, remember that it is better to stand in God's will. It is better to follow Jesus than to do anything else, no matter how illogical that might seem. It is better to be crucified, jailed, to lose your job and your friends, to be separated from your family, to have your reputation destroyed and ruined, and to follow Christ. And because Jesus follows the logic of the Father, and he sees the longing of his people, we can see, thirdly, the love of the Savior. The disciples think that what they're doing is going to lead to death. They don't understand. The sisters are completely alone in their misery and in their sorrow, which is now sealed for them because Lazarus has died. What is the point of allowing all of this? Why does Jesus let this happen what could possibly make this suffering, this sorrow, or this danger okay? What would Jesus possibly do that could right this ship? The resurrection is not going to take any of that away. 
their sorrow is present. And, and while it might be relieved, their sorrow was still there. He might be resurrected from the grave, but he still had to die. The danger is still going to be there, no matter how great of a miracle he does. And all of this, we're reminded of Jesus' just quite unique love. Listen to verses 5 and 6. Listen to how this is placed. It's just striking. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. John starts with that. He loved them. So, when he hears that Lazarus is sick, he says, I'm going to stay here two days. That is not what love looks like for us. Some have a lot of consternation and problems with the way that this is worded and trying to figure out exactly what's happening here as though they can relieve Jesus of the responsibility of Lazarus' death. They want to say, well, okay, he heard and he waited, but his wait was after Lazarus had already died, depending on where they place Jesus and where they place Bethany and the time it takes to travel between the two. And so a lot of people are trying to go through this and make it so that Lazarus died by the time Jesus heard and Jesus couldn't do anything about it. And he just wanted to wait to make it four days in the tomb so that Lazarus would be known as really, really dead. All of that might be true. It doesn't change the fact. Jesus let Lazarus die. Absolutely let him die. First of all, he has supernatural understanding. He already knows, already knows the prognosis. The word that comes to Jesus is simply that Lazarus is ill. But Jesus seems to automatically know this is going to lead to death. He already knows what's going to happen. He already knows what indeed has happened. Secondly, we know that Jesus can heal from a distance. And that second miracle that Jesus does, the official comes to him and says, why don't you come down and heal my son? There's some back and forth, but Jesus eventually says, listen, just go home. He's fine. And that very hour, his son was healed. We know Jesus can heal from a distance. We know he knows Lazarus is ill, and we know he doesn't heal him. So no matter how you cut it, Jesus allows Lazarus to die. And then he waits. And it says that he waits out of love. He doesn't move immediately out of love. He doesn't go and make it right out of love. He allows their sorrow to increase out of love. He allows his disciples to sit in ignorance out of love. He allows Lazarus to sit in that tomb out of love. Why let it happen? Wouldn't it be just as loving to go and heal Lazarus right away? Wouldn't it have been better to have kind of clued the disciples into everything that was going to happen? Wouldn't it show also his power and his goodness? Truth is that it might have, but not in the same way. By waiting, Jesus shows a great cure for ignorance of the disciples. He's going to fix it. Jesus says clearly to the disciples that it was good that he wasn't there. It says in verse 15, For your sake I'm glad that I was not there. Assuming that if he was there, he would have done something about it. Even as he could have done something about it at a distance, he says, at least I wasn't there so that you can learn from this, so that you can believe. Things might not have been this disastrous, but this is going to help you understand. It's going to help you see who I am. It is for their good that things progress to where they do because now they get to see the true power of Jesus in action. They will understand and believe that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life, that all that talk was not just talk. It wasn't just metaphor. He's not just the light of life and the food of life in some weird metaphysical 
conception of being, whatever it is that you might want that thing to mean outside of him actually being able to grant life to people, whatever people who don't believe in miracles do with something like this, that's not what Jesus was. And that's what he is destined to show them. That's what they are meant to see. That when he says that he is the resurrection and the life, it means that he will bring people up from the dead. It cements their faith that he is truly the Christ. It cures their ignorance. It will cure the sorrow of the sisters. You wonder how Lazarus and the girls got along. I mean, at best, he was probably an annoyance to him sometimes. I know how the two-girl-one-boy thing works. It doesn't always go smoothly, right? There's, there's frustration. There's gears grinding there sometimes. At best, they loved one another. But even in the best of times, people who have lost loved ones will attest they didn't know what they had until that person was gone. They didn't realize how much they loved and how little they showed them that they loved until those people were out of their lives. Can you imagine, in the span of a week, losing Lazarus and getting him back? What would that have been like for them? Every single thing that Lazarus does that next Monday, every single thing, could be exactly like what he did the previous Monday. He could get up, he could get ready for work, eat his breakfast and go out. And notice how much different they must view all of it. How much more filled with joy and happiness they would be at the fact that Lazarus got up out of bed. That's a miracle. Lazarus is walking to the table. That's a miracle. Lazarus is eating his Cheerios. That's a miracle. Praise God. You see, every little thing that would have been just perfectly normal is now filled with joy for them. And yeah, that can, that can wear out over time. I'm sure that they always remember that he was resurrected from the dead, but over the span of a couple of decades, that, that miracle is going to be kind of flattened out. But every, every action after that was nothing less than a miracle, and it is certainly filled with great joy. God allows sorrows, friend, to give you better joys. The good that Jesus gives to us is known, it is felt, and it is understood all the more when we have tasted the sorrows of not having him with us. The sweetness of chocolate is always best paired with the bitterness of coffee. God knows this because he loves coffee. We sing of this. We sing this very thing in Christ the Sure and Steady Acre, this beautiful song about us being in a boat it's a bad place to be, especially during the storms of life, thrown to and fro, but Jesus holds us centered and fast. He will not let us crash into the rocks. And that song ends. We will cross the great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. All the stuff that you go through in life, it's not there just to beat you down. If you are a Christian, if Christ knows you and loves you, his waiting to return, his waiting to deliver you, his waiting to bring you out of whatever situation you're in is not because he's apathetic or lazy or unable. He does it for your good and he does it for your joy. 
God allows us to taste bitterness so that we might better appreciate the sweetness of his good. But he also cures sickness. Remember, this is a picture of our salvation. Our salvation includes taking us out of sorrow. This is why the book of Revelation exists, to show us that there is a wonderful, wonderful picture of what God will leave for us. But this complete picture wouldn't be right without a resurrection. Because we're not just in a sinful world, but we ourselves are sinful. We're not just sick in need of some reviving. We're not just a little off, needing some better immunity in ourselves. We need to be resurrected, and this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to take away our death, both to give us life and to remove from us the very source of our death. That death is simply the wages of our sin. That death is simply an aspect of the fact that we are sinful. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to bear our sin away. He comes to take our sin from us. He will die our death. And in its place, he gives us our life, his life, a perfect life, a resurrected life. We are resurrected spiritually back to God so that we love him and care for him, just as Jesus will one day, if he tarries, take us up out of the ground and resurrect us to be perfect, immortal in body and in soul. Friends, this is our great hope. It's not that we can gain some better wisdom for life. Hopefully you don't come here or think through the Christmas season simply so that you can sing some Christmas carols and feel the love for your family and neighbor. This doesn't make you okay. Your hope can be no less than trusting that Jesus can raise you from your deadness and your sin and that one day he will raise you from the grave. And friends, the good news of this gospel is that he can. I'm sorry, I forgot to present a spoiler alert. Lazarus will actually get up out of the grave. He is actually going to do that. And the spoiler alert for all of creation is that all of you will as well. Jesus waits because he loves Lazarus. He waits because he loves the sisters. He waits because he loves the disciples. And he waits because he loves you. He wants you to know his salvation so that you might know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We often, during the Christmas season, press for peace and comfort and life on our own terms. These are merely band-aids on a bulging dam wall. There's something called the Miracle Truce of World War I, something you guys probably know of, even if you don't know it by that name. World War I, that trench warfare, in the beginning months of it, when Christmas came about, These trenches were dug literally feet sometimes away from other trenches, and so they were firing guns just feet away from the enemy. Germans on one side, Belgium, French, and English on the other side. And on Christmas Eve, there was this amazing ceasefire. The men in the trenches, without orders from the commanders to stop firing, to stop killing one another, just kind of did so. Graham Williams, who is of the 5th London Rifle Brigade, remembered it like this. He said, first the Germans would sing one of their carols, and we would sing one of ours. Until when we started up, O come all ye faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this really is a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. This little event is remembered as a sign of mankind's possible way forward. It is not in war, but in the possibility of peace, that we have more in common than we do apart, that there's always hope. Time Magazine wrote of this just a couple of years ago. 
Still a century later, the truce has been remembered as a testament to the power of hope and humanity in a truly dark hour of history. That is a great sentiment. Until the firing started the very next day, and in the waning years, 15 million people lost their lives. That is a fantastic picture of all of the peace and the comfort and the joy that mankind can give to themselves. If that is where our hope rests, we have no hope at all. That is our salvation outside of Jesus. That is our hope outside of Jesus. Small little pictures of detente that we fondly remember while millions are being butchered. And we call it good. The advent of our Lord is about the inbreaking of a new kingdom. It is about the trampling of enemies. It is about setting up a kingdom in spite of one that already exists. It is about resurrecting people from their dead. It is about a power that is unimaginable being wielded for your benefit. It is the power of creation being wielded in your life. It is about a peace that is true and lasting with God, not built on the whims and the dreams of men, but on the very will of God himself. That is the advent of our Lord. Let it be for this kingdom that we sing. Let it be for this hope that we raise our voices and let us follow this king who is our savior. Let us pray. Jesus, we know that we are sick. May you give us life. We know that we are filled with the sorrows of the world. So we pray that you give us consolation. We know that we are filled with doubts, unable to see the way forward. Give us light and understanding. You and you alone are our desire. For in you alone are the very words of life found that we need. Give us strength to stand in you, to trust in your love during difficult times, and to wait for your salvation. We ask these things for your glory and for our good. Amen.